If you have your Bibles this evening, I'm going to turn to the second chapter of Ephesians and read the first ten verses in that passage. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, the fulfilling of the lusts of the flesh, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I think all of us have heard grace defined as the undeserved and the unmerited favor of God. And with that definition, I have no argument. As a matter of fact, I believe it's eminently correct. However, this evening I want to define grace this way. It's getting what you need instead of what you deserve. If you were at First Chapel this morning, you heard Brother Neil Pryor use the word grace in this way. Grace is getting what you need instead of what you deserve. As you know, and I've referred to it several times in this meeting, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and when he learned that she was expecting a child, he attempted to get her with her husband, so that when the child was born, everyone would think that it was a premature birth, but... Nevertheless, by Uriah, the baby was fathered by Uriah. But he was unable to get the two of them together, and so the only way out, as he saw it, was to kill her husband and then take Bathsheba to be his own wife, and that's what he did. And following that activity, you remember he was rebuked by Nathan the prophet. And in response to the rebuke, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, The Lord has put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Now under the law of Moses, he deserved to die on two counts. They were adultery and murder. But God didn't give him what he deserved. He gave him what he needed. He needed saving. He needed grace. And that's what God gave him. Grace is getting what you need instead of what you deserve. According to the 8th chapter of John, Jesus was teaching in the temple area one day, and the scribes and Pharisees took a woman to him whom they had caught in the very act of sexual immorality. Incidentally, have you ever wondered why they didn't take the man? He was just as guilty as was she. But they took the poor, helpless, defenseless woman. Uh, probably because they knew it would be difficult for Christ to be as severe with the woman as he was with the man. They wanted to complicate his problem. And so when they brought the woman to Jesus, they said, Now, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery, and the law says she's to be stoned. What do you say? And they were trying to pin him on the horns of a dilemma. It was true that the law said an adulteress was to be stoned, but it was also true that Rome ruled Palestine, and that Rome reserved for herself the right of capital punishment. And so if Jesus had said, yes, fellows, let's follow the law and stone her, he would have been in trouble with Rome. On the other hand, if he'd said, no, let's not stone her, then he would have been in trouble with the law. So it seemed that either way he went, he was going to be in hot water. And uh, so the Lord leaned over and wrote upon the ground as though he didn't hear them. Brother Marshall Keeble, the late great black evangelist, once said that when Jesus leaned over and wrote upon the ground, he wasn't writing anything in particular. He was just giving those devils time to sweat. And that's probably the truth of the matter. But at any rate, they persisted. The law says she's to be stoned. What do you say? And so finally he raised up and said, The one among you who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. 
And really what that means is this. Now, gentlemen, uh, you say you're concerned about following the law, that you're really interested in fulfilling what it says. Well, uh, there's one little item you've overlooked. The law also says that in a capital case, the witnesses are to cast the first stones. You say you saw her. All right, get busy now and participate in her stoning. Well, of course, if they had done a thing like that, they'd be in trouble with Rome. And the Bible indicates that beginning with the oldest and going down to the youngest, they left one at a time, and only the Lord and the woman were standing there in the midst of the people. And he turned to her and said, Woman, where are thine accusers? Doth no man condemn thee? And she said, No man, Lord. He said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. Now, he didn't wink at her wickedness. As a matter of fact, he went to the cross a short time later and died for her sin. But apparently he recognized that she was a penitent person. I've given you two stories from the Word of God. And in these two instances, we found that God made exceptions to His rule. The first one was concerning adulterous David, and the second one was concerning the adulterous woman. And I hope that you'll not make any more of the two stories than I have. You and I must plead according to the law. And if any exceptions are to be made, that's God's prerogative, not yours and not mine. But here are two cases where God gave what was needed instead of what was deserved. Here are two cases where God extended grace. That's what grace is. Getting what you need instead of what you deserve. At Luke 15, you have the parable of the prodigal. Jesus told of the young man who went to his father and asked for his portion of the inheritance. And a few days later, he loaded up his belongings and went into a far country and wasted his substance in riotous living. After he had spent all, a great famine arose in the land. The boy began to be in want. No man gave him to him. He joined himself to a citizen of that country and was sent out into the field to tend the swine. The Bible says he came to himself. He hadn't been at himself. He'd been beside himself or below himself. He'd been temporarily insane. That's what sin is. But when he came to himself, he said, uh, How many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And the Bible says he arose and came unto his father. And his dad looked down the road and saw him while he was a great way off. Brother Charles Hodge has a sermon entitled, Will God Run? And the answer is yes. God will run to welcome back into his arms a penitent brother or sister. And I can imagine that the old gentleman in Luke 15 had looked down that lane many a time. And now he looks and he sees his son, dirty, disheveled, and ragged. But he recognizes him. And frankly, I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible because that dirty, ragged, disheveled son at one end of the lane is you or me. And the old gentleman at the other end of the lane is our Heavenly Father. And the Scripture says that he ran to him because he had compassion upon him. And he fell upon his neck and he kissed him. And the boy blurted out his confession, I've sinned against heaven and, and before thee and I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. But according to Weymouth's translation, he said, I no longer deserve to be called a son of yours. And his dad wouldn't let him finish the confession. He interrupted him. And he said, well, I bring a robe and put it on his back and, and shoes for his feet and a, a ring for his hand and, and let us kill the fatted calf and eat and be merry. For this, my son, was dead and he is alive. He was lost and he's found. The boy says, I don't deserve to be called a son of yours. The father said, this, my son dead and he's alive. He was lost but he's found. He didn't give him what he deserved. He gave him sonship. That's what he needed. And even though the boy was talking about what he was worthy of and what he deserved, the father overlooked all of that. And he simply referred to him as this my son. 
Grace is getting what you need instead of what you deserve. You ever heard someone say, all I want from life is what I deserve? <laughs> Man, I never said that drunk or sober or awake or asleep. And there's another line right under it. I don't mean to say it. I don't want what I deserve. I deserve to be damned because I've sinned. But I want from life what I need. Salvation. I need saving. And grace is getting what we need instead of what we deserve. But how is one saved by grace? Paul reveals it in the passage I read a moment ago. And in the first three verses of that reading, he describes those who are living without the Savior. And really we can't understand what it means to be saved by grace unless we can see the predicament of those who are lost or see the predicament in which we lived when we were lost. And he says these people, first of all, are dead in trespasses and in sins. And you think of a figure more repulsive than a dead, odorous, decaying corpse? Well, that's the figure used to describe men and women, boys and girls, who are living without the Savior. And they're dead in trespasses and in sins because they're separated from God, who is the very source of life. He says in the second place that they fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. An animal fulfills the desires of its flesh. And these people fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind for all practical purposes if you're living without the Savior. You have reduced yourself to the level of a thinking animal. Every individual really is a triune being. He is flesh, mind, and soul. But if we live without Christ, we have to ignore those deep emotional and moral and spiritual needs. We have to act as though we do not possess a soul, fulfill only the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But he says in the third place that they walk according to the course of the world and according to the prince of the power of the air. And that's simply another way of saying that they are enslaved to Satan. And if you're living without the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, if you're an unsaved person, you react to the wishes of the devil just like a puppet reacts to the string pulling of the puppeteer. And when Satan says to jump, about the only response you can give is, well, uh, how far did you have in mind? Yes, you're enslaved to sin if you're not a Christian, and that's what Paul here affirms. And he says in the fourth place that they are by nature children of wrath, even as others. And when he says they are this by nature, he doesn't mean they are born this way, but he means they have become this because of their sin. This word nature is used in at least two different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it means what we are by virtue of our birth. For example, in Romans 2, the writer said, So then the Gentiles, who do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. That is, they do by nature, those great fulfilled by nature, those great moral precepts in the law. Now, they are following that innate moral code that's written on their heart. Why? Because they're people, human beings. Sometimes nature refers to what we are by virtue of our birth, by virtue of the fact that we're people. But sometimes it refers to what we are by long-established practice. Joseph Henry Thayer in his Greek-English lexicon gives both of these definitions of the word nature. And immediately following the second one, he lifts Ephesians 2 and 3. In other words, the people under consideration were not born that way, but they became that way. By second nature, they were children of wrath. We say of a man who's been drinking for 25 or 30 years, he's a drunkard by nature. We don't mean he was born drinking, but we mean he's been drinking so long that it's his second nature to drink. Or we say of one who has twisted and perverted the truth across the years, it's his nature to lie. We don't mean he was born a liar. But it has become his second nature to lie. 
And so Paul in this passage in saying that they are by nature children of wrath simply means that one in sin has done wrong over and over and over again and now it's his second nature to do the wrong thing. And thus they stand under the wrath of a holy God. And on down in verse 12 he describes them further by saying that they are without God, having no hope and without Christ. Now you look at that horrible description of those who live without the Savior. Dead in trespasses and in sins, fulfilling the lusts, I beg your pardon, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, walking according to the world and according to the prince of the power of the air, by nature children of wrath, without God, without hope, without Christ. What a horrible and desperate situation such people are in. I do not have words in my vocabulary to describe the plight of the lost. And if you think the world is better off now than it was 20 years ago, it's really not that the world is any better. It's because you've gotten worse. You can't imagine how lost men and women, boys and girls are who have never yet turned to the Savior. If we accept the description given by Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, we have absolutely no difficulty then drawing the conclusion that he drew. If men are in that horrible, desperate situation, if they are characterized by the language he uses, then obviously they cannot earn or merit or deserve their salvation. That's why he said, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In the fourth chapter of Romans, he said, If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. What saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. In Titus chapter 3, verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He hath saved us. In Romans 11 and 6, He affirmed, If we're saved by grace, it's not by works. And if we're saved by works, it's not by grace. Those two items are mutually exclusive according to inspiration. And that simply means that you and I cannot be saved by character, morality, philanthropy, legislation, animal sacrifice, ritual, ecclesiasticism, sociology, psychology, ideology, philosophy, or education. None of these things are involved in our salvation. We simply cannot do enough good to put God in our debt. Even if Noah's descendants had been able to build that tower of Babel all the way up to the pearly portals, if they could have knocked on the gates of that celestial city and demanded an entrance, they would not have earned it. They would not have merited it nor deserved it. Jesus beautifully summed it up when He said, When we've done all things commanded of God, we're still unprofitable servants. I'd give anything in this world almost if I could just get my brethren everywhere I preach to accept this. You ask the average Christian, are we saved by grace? He'll say yes. But you watch him. And he's always uptight. And he can't relax and he's scared and he's frustrated. You say, uh, are you saved? Uh, well, uh, maybe. Or I hope, or perhaps, or it could be, or I'll have to wait until the day of judgment to find out. You believe in salvation by grace? Well, yeah. Are you saved? Uh, well, uh, uh, saved? Uh, saved? Uh, he's not sure. And so his intellect runs in one direction and his emotions run in another direction. And let me tell you something, friend. When your intellect and your emotions aren't 
running together, when they don't coincide, you're in serious old trouble. And carried to an extreme, that's what's in, what insanity is. When the intellect and the emotions don't go together, let's take a look at one of our denominational friends. Are you saved? He looks us right straight in the face. He says, yes, sir. Then he says to you, are you saved? And you say, well, uh, I hope, or, or maybe, or, or it could be. And so as from his point of view, he thinks we're trying to win him from a position of certainty to a position of uncertainty. And he thinks that we're saying to him, in essence, why don't you get into the New Testament church and be wretched with the rest of us? That's the way he looks at it. Someone said, well, what about you, Jim? Are you saved? Yes, sir, I'm saved. I'm saved. I don't have the slightest doubt in my mind about it. Well, you surely are an egotist to be able to stand up and say that. Oh, no, I can say that because I'm depending in another, not in myself. Why, if I didn't believe I were saved, I'd be afraid to go to bed tonight. You know, when I close those eyes, I might not open them again. And suppose that I die while I'm asleep, but on the other hand, I'd be afraid to stay awake too. I wouldn't want to face tomorrow. Why, the only way I can live from day to day is in the knowledge. Yes, I'm saved. If we are saved by God's grace, why can't we accept it intellectually and accept it emotionally and then kind of be relaxed and go about our everyday life and say, yes, sir, I'm depending upon the Lord and therefore I'm saved. Now, I've said it earlier in this meeting and I want to say it again. I don't believe the doctrine of once saved, always saved. That's not in the Bible. But the doctrine of the security of the believer is in the Bible. And as long as we trust the Lord as the Bible defines the word trust, we are saved seven days a week 52 weeks in a year saved. Why? Because of what the Lord's doing for us as we really, truly, genuinely, and sincerely trust and obey Him. Salvation by grace. Now, back to that description in Ephesians 2. Men in a horrible and a desperate plight, what were they to do? Ah, that's the wrong question. If they were to be saved, the question is, what was God to do? He had to take the initiative, and thank God He did. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried and He arose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said in Romans 5, Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And a little later He said, We are reconciled to God by the death of His Son, and, and much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. In the third chapter of Romans, he affirmed that Christ died to expiate or propitiate the just nature of God. Peter said he bare in his body our own sins on the tree. Why, God gave Jesus as the gift of His grace. At Hebrews 2 and 9, the Scripture says, By the grace of God He was made a little lower than the angels, so as to taste death for every man. This is what Jesus meant at John 3.16 when He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In the fourth chapter of John, as he addressed the Samaritan woman, he referred to himself as God's gift. At 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul said, Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift. In the fifth chapter of Romans, verses 15 to 18, six times Jesus is called God's gift, and three of those six times He's referred to as a free gift. Men were in sin. They couldn't do anything, but God gave His Son, Jesus, for the sins of this lost humanity. Now, what is man's response to that grace? What is man's response to that cross? By grace are you saved through faith. 
There's man's response. Faith. It's a faith response. Well, it raises the question, what does the word faith mean? Well, you look it up in a Greek-English lexicon and you'll find one of the first definitions is conviction. At Hebrews 11 and 1 of the American Standard Version, it reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction is the, the strong belief that a thing is correct or that it's true. I believe, for example, I am convicted that George Washington was the general in the, of the colonial armies and that he was the first president of the United States. And in a similar way, I am convicted, I am convinced, I believe that Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary and that his ministry was characterized by miracles, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he was raised, that he bodily ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. Now thus far, in my definition of faith, Jesus Christ and George Washington stand on equal footing. But now there's, after that, there's where they'll part company. Because the next definition of faith is trust. Trust. I don't trust George Washington for anything. Trust. Reliance. Confidence. Dependence. I do trust Jesus Christ. Not far from the old house in which I lived as a lad... There stood an oak tree that must have been 75 or 80 years old. Massive tree. It had a great big limb, however, that came very low to the ground. And with a little difficulty, I could shinny up that limb and get into that big tree. Easy to get up. <laughs> but boy, I'll tell you something else. It was a chore to get out because it had a great big long stretch of limb there where there wasn't anything to hold on to but that big limb. Not any little branches, just that limb. And you know, I've climbed that tree and I'd be up there all alone, wouldn't be anybody around. And so I'd start back down and I'd sit there and think, oh my, what a mess I'm in. How am I going to get out of here? And sometimes I'd have to sit there for 15 or 20 minutes to work up the courage to shinny back over that bare place and go down that limb. Sometimes I almost cried. And I said, oh, let's say this. I read about a little boy who climbed a tree and he didn't think he could get out, so he was sitting up in that tree crying. Man walked by. What's the matter, son? He said, I can't get down. He said, well, if you'll just drop, I'll catch you. He said, no, sir, I won't do that, but I'll live right across the street. If you go over and tell my daddy, I'd appreciate it. So he went across the street and told his daddy. His daddy walked back over, stood under the tree. He said, son, just drop now and I'll catch you. He came right out of that tree. Now, why didn't he drop for that first fellow? Why, he didn't know him from Adam, but he knew his daddy, and he trusted his daddy. And when his daddy said drop, he came out of that tree. He dropped. That's what trust is. Martin Luther, several years after he had made the break with the Catholic Church, and after he had married and they had some children, he had some friends in the house one day, and he was attempting to illustrate to them what he meant uh, concerning salvation by faith. And so he put his daughter up on the mantelpiece, and he said, All right, honey, jump, and I'll catch you. She jumped, and he caught her. That's what trust is. It's doing what the Lord wants us to do. If God tells you and me to back up and run it to wall, then we're supposed to run it to wall. And if any hole is to be made, that's His responsibility. We just back up and run. He says, do it. Many of you know Maurice Hall. He's kind of short. But on the other hand, I think he's ten feet tall. Oh, he's one of the biggest men I've ever known. Maurice had been in the Army eight or nine years, was a captain, but he resigned his commission, and he spent the next eight or ten years then as a missionary to France came back to the United States, studied for a while, and then went to Vietnam, went there when it was dangerous to do so. And frankly, I think he'd probably still be over there if, if the health of his good wife hadn't broken. But nevertheless, after a couple of years, he had to return. Well, he spent the night with us, and the next day the two of us were driving over to the campus, and I said, Maurice, you beat anything I've ever seen. 
I said, man, you're just like a child before God. The Lord tells you to do something. You don't try to evade or dodge. You don't doubt. I said, you just begin to look for a way to fulfill it. He's a man of trust, a man of faith, a modern-day Abraham. That's what faith is, doing what the Lord tells us to do. We're saved by grace through faith. Now, salvation is as free as the, the air you breathe, but it's not unconditional. There's no such thing, in my judgment, as an unconditional gift in any realm. Why, before it's accepted, it's not a gift, it's just an offer. And whatever's involved in its acceptance is a condition, and once it's accepted, it becomes a gift. Now, you try to imagine a gift without conditions. I've used this little illustration all over the country, and I'll use it again. Suppose after service is over, Neil Pryor says, I'll tell you what, Jim, I'm going to give you a dollar, and you're not going to have to do anything for it. It'll be absolutely unconditional. All right, how's he going to do it? He said, well, I'll just walk up to you and I'll slip it in your pocket right quick. Well, I'll have to stand there while he puts it in. Well, you say that's not a condition. Why isn't it? Suppose I decide no. And he, he misses. See? Well, let's suppose for the sake of argument that's not a condition. So he just slips it in my pocket. Now, how am I going to get any good from it? Now, you know, money's to spend, they tell me. So here I have a dollar on my hands and it's burning a hole in my pocket. What am I going to do? Well, I'll have to take it to the store. But suppose when I get to the store, I tell the salesperson, the fella gave me this, and I don't want to do anything, but it's right there in my pocket. You just reach over and get it. Well, he or she's going to have to reach it. There is no such thing as an unconditional gift. That animal simply does not exist. There are some conditions to be met in the reception of any gift. God's gift is salvation, but the condition is faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Bible says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I want a little taller blackboard, but maybe all of you are able to see this nevertheless. That word grace is the one we're talking about tonight, but if you'll read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 carefully, you'll find three other words in that passage concerning the activity of God. For example, you'll find the word love, you'll find the word mercy, and you'll find the word kindness. What is the love of God? Grace. What is the mercy of God? Grace. What is the kindness of God? Grace. Grace, you see, is a comprehensive word, and it includes His love, His mercy, and His kindness. Well, we're saved by grace through faith. It's quite likely, then, that great faith is a comprehensive word that includes other acts of obedience. To whom was Paul writing this? The Ephesians. How are the Ephesians saved? By grace through faith. But did you ever look at the various passages in the Bible that tell how the Ephesians were converted. For example, look in chapter 1, verse 13. In whom, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that you believed you were sealed of that Holy Spirit of promise. Why, according to Ephesians 1, 13, these people heard, they believed, and they trusted. Then, if you'll go to Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul, in speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, declared how that he had preached to them repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There's another item. While at Ephesus, he had preached repentance. Then you go to the 19th chapter of the Acts, the first seven verses, the beginning of the third missionary journey, you find Paul at Ephesus. He ran in 12 men. All 12 of them had received the baptism of John. He taught them the way of the Lord more accurately and baptized all 12 of them a second time. He dipped them the second time. Now, I know as a matter of absolute fact that the charter members of the Ephesian church went to the water not once, but twice. And according to Acts 19 and 5, he dipped those 12 men in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, at Acts 2.38, the apostle Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, Repent and be baptized, 
every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now what's the difference in being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and in being baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus? Not any. They are equivalent expressions. All right, the Ephesians are baptized in in the name of Jesus, which is the equivalent of saying they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is to be baptized for remission of sins. Therefore, the Ephesians were baptized for the remission of sins. So we'll add that to our list. At Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, he said, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. What is this washing of water by the word? Real scholars are divided into two groups on that passage. One group says this means that by the Word or through the teaching of the Word, they were led to the experience of Christian baptism, at which time they were washed, sanctified, and cleansed. Another group of scholars will say that it refers to Christian baptism, and by the Word means when they were baptized, it was accompanied by a spoken word. That is, the individual who administered the ordinance said a word over the candidates when he was baptizing them. But both groups say that it's baptism. Well, from Acts chapter 19, we found they were baptized for remission of sins. In Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, at that very moment, they were sanctified, washed, and cleansed. Now hold on to that and let's go to Titus 3, beginning in verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He hath saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. What's the difference in the washing of water by the Word and the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit? Technically a slight difference, but practically none. Both of these passages refer to the same experience, namely Christian baptism. One time it's called the washing of water by the Word. The other time it's called the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Hence we can say that when the Ephesians were baptized, they received remission of sins. They were washed, sanctified, cleansed, regenerated, and renewed. All of that happened at the same instance. Same instance. Now I want us to read Titus 3, 5 through 7. And I beg you to listen. When I saw this, it just almost knocked the wind out of me. Boy, I think it's beautiful. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He hath saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 5, works excluded, baptism included. Verse 7, it's called justification by grace. You know what that means? That means baptism is not a work. It's not a work of human merit. It's not a work of human righteousness. What is it? It's a part of man's faith response to God's grace. And if that's what it is, it is essential to salvation. If that's what it is, it is essential to salvation. Paul said the Ephesians were saved by grace through faith. But from the Scripture, we have seen that the Ephesians were converted to Jesus by hearing, believing, trusting, repenting, being baptized in Christ's name for remission of sins, at which time they were washed, sanctified, cleansed, regenerated, 
and renewed. And yet to sum it up, it's salvation by grace through faith. Grace includes the love, mercy, and kindness of God. Faith includes hearing, belief, trust, repentance, and baptism. Now, if baptism is a part of man's faith response to the grace of God, look what follows. As I've already indicated, it follows that one must be baptized to receive God's grace. It follows, number two, that baptism is not a human work of man's righteousness. It isn't. When a man is being baptized, he's not trying to earn anything. He's not trying to merit, not trying to deserve anything. He's simply throwing himself on God's grace. Now compare that with a Protestant position. You know one of the reasons Protestantism arose? In rebellion to the Catholic idea of salvation by works. And so one of the fundamentals of Protestantism has been salvation by faith. But almost every conservative Protestant in the country says that after you're saved by faith, you need to go through a form of what they call baptism to get in the church. What does a Protestant say baptism is? Oh, that's a work. You see, they can't say it's part of man's faith response to the grace of God because if they say that, then it's essential to salvation. And so they say, no, it's a work. It's a work of human merit. It's a work of man's righteousness. Then it follows inevitably that every benefit and every blessing that an individual gets as a member of the church is earned, merited, and God has to give it to him as a matter of debt, not of grace. He earns it. He deserves it. He merits it. And he says, God, you give it to me because you owe it to me. It is true Catholicism has taught salvation by works, but Protestantism has a dichotomy. It says initial salvation by faith, but from their own works. Now you hear me. I beg you to hear me. The only people under God's heaven who can teach from beginning to end salvation by grace through faith is the people who meet right here. And we're the folks who are accused of a works platform. Brother Barton W. Stone was on his deathbed. He said, it is all of grace. It is all of grace. He knew exactly the point I'm trying to make tonight, that from beginning to end, it's all grace through faith. Ah, but I hear someone saying, Jim, you got James 2 to contend with. James says, you see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Earlier in that same chapter, James said, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. James is discussing true faith. How do you show faith? By works. What kind of works? Works of merit? Works of man's righteousness? No. Works in response to God's will. Works of faith. Works of trust. Now I go to verse 24. You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by what you fellows call faith only. That's not true faith. And if he were writing it today, he'd put quotes around the word faith. And yet some of us will quote James 2.24 as though it were a matter of faith and works. True faith, biblically defined, includes works. But they're not works of merit. They're not works of human boasting and glorification. We are saved by grace through faith, which includes the demonstration or the expression of itself in obedience to God's will. No place in the scheme of redemption do we earn, merit, or deserve anything. Nowhere. There are two sides of this matter of salvation. There's God's side and there's man's side. God's side can be summed up as grace and man's side can be summed up as faith. What's church attendance? Faith. What's Bible study? Faith. What's prayer? Faith. What's soul winning? Faith. 
What's being generous in your giving? Faith. What's following the golden rule of faith? All of it is simply and only faith if it's biblically defined. That's what it is. Suppose you want to make a trip to the Holy Land and a trip like that it costs you all. Let's say you're going to stay five weeks. It'd probably run over $3,000 now. But you're flat broke and a friend walks up and he says, Hey, Jake, I know you want to go to the Holy Land and I know you're broke and i got $3,000 for you, man. Right there it is. You'll have to get your passport. What are you going to do the rest of your life? Glory in how you obtained your passport or will you spend the rest of your life glorying in the generosity of your friend? You'll spend the rest of your life glorying in the generosity of your friend. And my friends, as far as that illustration is concerned, obtaining that passport is like our obedience to the gospel. And when you get the passport, you still haven't earned the $3,000 and when we simply respond to God's grace through an obedient faith, we haven't earned, merited, nor deserved anything. We're just like a drowning man reaching out and grabbing the rope. We grab hold of the rope and God pulls us out. Salvation with grace through faith. You ever tried to figure why anybody's lost? You ever tried to figure that out? I've thought about it a lot. Why would anybody be lost? You might be able to give a thousand and one excuses, but you can sum up all the excuses for people being lost under one heading, and that's unbelief. That's why people are lost. They don't believe. When times were hard and money was scarce, a preacher was standing before an audience attempting to make the same point I'm striving to make tonight. He held up a dollar bill. He looked down on the front row and he had a group of little boys ranging in age from 7 to 13. He said, one of you boys come up here, I'll give you the dollar. And they just kind of looked at one another, you know, and giggled. <laughs> you know? So, come on, one of you, come on, come on, come on I'll, give, I'll give you the dollar if one of you come up. They just kind of, come on, boys, I'm serious. If one of you come up here, well, finally, two of them went up there with him. He didn't ask but for one, but he got two. So he gave a person a dollar and he went over and sat down. He grabbed that other boy by the hand. He said, son, you really want this dollar? He said, yes, sir, I really want it. Son, have you done anything to earn this? No, no, sir. You really want it? Yes, sir. He gave him a dollar and he went over and sat down. Now what do you suppose those other kids were doing? Sitting over there kicking themselves because they hadn't gone up to the platform. I thought the preacher's kidding. He's just joshing us. But he was serious. They didn't move because they didn't believe it. They didn't really believe what he said. And the reason men and women are lost tonight is they don't really believe. Apparently some have the idea they have to do something real big and put God in their debt. It can't be done. You have to simply throw yourself on the Lord by obedience to His commandments. You've got to become like a little child. You have to be like putty in His hands. Trust Him, do what He says, and He'll save you. In conclusion, in verse... Well, this one and one more. This is my first conclusion. i got two. <laughs> in verse 10, he says, we become his workmanship. We're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, but we're his workmanship. And that word in the original language is, is beautiful. It's, it's poem, I sort of colorless in the translation. It could be transliterated as poem. We become God's beautiful, lovely, exquisite creation. We become God's poetry. Once His grace operates in our lives, we become the poetry of God. Now, my second conclusion. A couple of words of warning. Don't ever pervert God's grace. Don't ever do that. latter part of Romans 5, Paul pointed out that, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And he knew that somebody would twist that reasoning and say, well, let's see, if grace abounds where there's sin, then if I'll sin a lot, I'll get a lot of grace. 
And so he began the sixth chapter by saying, Well, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer then? Uh-uh. Don't ever presume upon the grace of God. Jude, in describing the false teachers of his day, said they turned the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Using the grace of God to justify their wickedness. Don't do that. And my second word of warning is, don't receive God's grace in vain. At 1 Corinthians 15 and 10, Paul said the grace of God had not been bestowed upon him in vain. Well, the implication is clear. It had been bestowed upon some in vain. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul besought his readers to not receive the grace of God in vain. You know what the word vain means? It means useless, empty, futile. And if one receives the grace of God in vain, he receives it in an empty, futile, and useless way. Brother George Bailey has beautifully summed it up. You live as though Christ never died. One day you will die as though Christ never lived. If you live as though Christ never died, that means you receive God's grace in an empty, vain, futile, useless way. Years ago, there was a wreck, a train wreck. Some kids ran back up the track a mile or so because another train was due by, and they signaled and waved trying to get the man to stop the train. But he thought, oh, it's just a group of youngsters, and he sped on. Fortunately for him, another half mile down the tracks was a group of older people, and they signaled and they waved in an attempt to get him to stop, and he decided to stop. If he had paid no attention to those two warnings, he'd have piled into that wreck, and likely he and all of his crew would have been killed. The first warning was an expression of grace. The second warning was an expression of grace. Had he failed to give heed to both of them, that simply means he would have received grace in vain and probably died. Have you thus far in life received the grace of God in vain? I likely have mentioned it in this meeting. If I haven't, I know I've mentioned it at Harding College many a time. I heard the gospel in a forceful, meaningful way when I was 13. I should have turned to Christ then, but I wasted six years. I received the grace of God in vain for six years. Suppose I died. And I think of some of the close scrapes. Suppose I died, going out into eternity unprepared to meet the Lord. Having rejected the precious Son of God who had the nails in His hands and in His feet, whose heart was broken for my sins, wouldn't that be a horrible thing? Have you thus far in life received the grace of God in vain? Have you trampled underfoot the Son of God? Have you counted the blood of the covenant wherewith you could be sanctified an unholy thing? Have you done despite the Spirit of grace? If you are a backslidden brother or sister, if you're an erring Christian, why don't you come back home tonight? Come back into the grace of God. And if you're one who has never confessed Jesus and has never initially received Him by an obedient faith, why don't you come to Him tonight? If you have heard and understood what I have said this evening, I have taken the position that from the beginning until the time we walk into heaven, it's grace through faith. The people in this congregation who understand the teaching of the New Testament know that we earn nothing. That's why the people of this congregation on their deathbed could say with Brother Stone, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Understanding that we have responded to an obedient faith. And I beg you tonight, if you need to come to this amazing grace of God, that you do it. We start, I beg your pardon, the song just before I stood to speak was, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. And that's a pretty good line to close with. And I urge you to come. God loves you, and God wants to save you. Everything is in readiness. Won't you come to the front right now while we stand and sing?